Okay, tonight I am really excited about some of the things I get to share with you, things that I've been learning over the last several weeks. Um, and, and because it is, one, so exciting, two, a lot and, and big, I feel really feel like I really need to stay tied to my notes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to say what's on here because I know I could easily just go off and, and it'll, it'll, be, it'll be long. So I'm going to try to stay as close as I can to my notes, um, mainly because this is big and, and there's a big question that's being asked that's been asked, it's asked by you guys, it's been asked by everyone I think all times. I mean everyone, you, this is our human nature to ask this question of how did we get here? How did we get here? And, you know, it's a, fair, it's a fair assumption to make that all people, all people groups have asked this question and have had some, some, some way to explain it, some narrative that explains the beginning for them. And you, you may actually be surprised to know that there are lots of different, we call them creation narratives. Um... And, and I've come to believe that Genesis is just one of those creation narratives. Now, I'm going to clarify what I mean by that. But I say that because there are lots. And, and sometimes you can find out that there's these different creation narratives and they have some of the similar details that Genesis has. And it can kind of trip you out. Um, but, but the reality is that everyone at all times has been asking this question and has been writing these things and it has some sort of narrative or epic that explains what um, and how things came to be. And specifically in the ancient Near East, as it's kind of called, or Egypt or the Mesopotamia, several thousand years ago, there are multiple narratives and epics that, that describe this thing. And, and similar accounts, similar details are found in Genesis. So I don't know what that does to you. I don't know what that, I don't know what that messes with your head to know that there's others like it, but um, the one thing that I will say, and I'll get more into this, is that when they ask this question, how did we get here, they mean something different than when you and I ask it. And so I'll explain that here in a second. But before I do that, we need to recap last week. So there's two things I want to say about last week, things that we need to be reminded of that will help us today. The first one is that the Bible must be understood in its own terms. If you want to be any good literal literary critic, if you want to, if you want to understand any sort of ancient piece of literature, you have to try to understand it on its terms. Okay? So we ask this question, what is the author's intended meaning, the aim? What's the author's intended meaning? Second thing is, the Genesis written to Israel, okay, not to us, not to you, not, not to somebody in the 21st century, but to Israel as covenant till history. As covenant till history. And we talked about what that means last week, but basically here's a summaration, a, a, a summary of, of Genesis. That, that in Genesis, God reveals himself as sovereign creator of all things, and Israel as the people he chooses to bless all people. The people he chooses to kind of bring redemption and restoration to all the world. So, those two things we need to remember. Here's three keys, okay, three more things that we need to, we need to understand as we go forward um, into Genesis chapter 1. Here's the first one. is that God communicates through ancient authors in terms they understood. Okay? When God reveals His Word to the authors of the Bible, He does not speak to modern ideas and sciences. So let me ask you a question. Is, is science dynamic or is it static? What would you say? Is it static? Is it, is it, it's, it stays? Or is it dynamic in that it grows and changes? 
It changes. So science moves forward as ideas are tested and new ones replace old ones. So it would make sense that, that when God inspires the authors of the Bible, He's not speaking to any one era of science. He's not speaking to any one group that has things figured out because science is dynamic and it changes. Genesis' answer to all your scientific questions is this, that it was never intended to answer your scientific questions. And that is huge. And, 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 and I wish I could spend half of our time talking about the implications of this, but especially when you're sitting in class, and especially when a, a professor opens the Bible, and then he quotes from Genesis 1, and he quotes from Genesis 2, and he says, see, you can't even get two chapters in without contradicting each other. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis itself was never intended to answer questions that we have in the 21st century, or the 18th century, or the 15th century. I'm getting off my notes. His, his revelation is complete. It's not missing anything. So, in other words, God isn't going, oh man, you know what, I, I wish I would have put an index at the back of the Bible and had some sort of like, here's some extra points for all of you people in the coming centuries. No. God doesn't have any desire to try to explain Himself. What He offers is complete. The second thing. The other creation narratives point to the validity of Israel's creation narrative, not the mythology of it. So I want you to picture Israel, okay, 34, 3500 years ago, whenever this was written. Israel as a people group in Egypt, Mesopotamia area, okay, ancient Near Eastern people. And they have this, this, this document, this narrative that explains their origin. And they say, our creation narrative has similar things that yours has. But our God and His purposes for us stands in direct contrast to yours. See, you, what we're trying to do when we, in, when we interpret the Bible is get into the minds of those who wrote it and the, the audience to who it was written to. And in order to do that, we've got to be asking different and better questions. So, the creation narrative in Genesis stands, there's some similarities and this actually would have been like, yeah, there's, yeah, we have the same kind of things. Yeah, we do too. Yeah, we have that too. But here's how our God is. Our God has ultimate power. Our God is consistent in character. Our God makes people to, not to serve Him, but to represent Him and to rule on His behalf. Our God made Himself known to us in contrast to the others. Ancient mythologies are helpful to understand what kind of ways they understood their beginnings. So they, these, these mythologies can be helpful to un, help us understand how did people think back then? What questions were they asking? Ancient Near Eastern people all wanted to know about the beginning, how their God is in charge, how they came into existence, and the purpose they serve. So no different than you and I. No different than them, but they were asking a different question. And here's, here's the third one, and this will be most, most uh, helpful for, I think, where we're going. Ancient cosmology is function-oriented, not material-oriented. So, when you th- let me ask you. When you think of something being created, or something existing, what do you think of? So, when, is a chair, when does a chair exist? When you can sit on it. Okay? It becomes a chair. It's created when you can sit on it. When does a company exist? 
When is a company created? Is it, is it when the, the owners or the developers have ideas? Is it when they put some things on paper and you know, file it away? Is it when they have a building or a web, website? Is it when they start doing business? And the answer is kind of yes to maybe all of them. Depends on how you look at it. And so the difference between a chair being created, it's a material thing. It exists when we can sit on it. And a company being created, ah, it serves, companies serve a functional thing. It's a function. It's a, they have function that needs to happen for them to exist. So ancient Near Eastern people, ancient cosmology is focused on functional orientation, not, not, not material. They're not thinking how, um, how and when did these things all come into be. They're, they're thinking, they're asking why and, and what. They're asking different questions. So what they mean by how did we come to exist they mean something different than how you and I think about it. And that will become more clear as we get into it. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to stop there. I do not think that this is a separate, this is like a, um, God's doing something here. This is a literary um, summary, a literary introduction to where he's going, where the author's going, to basically this chapter. And to, so to translate this, because I don't have time to get into the word beginning, or the word created, which we'll talk about a little bit, or the words heavens and earth, so I don't have time to get into that, but basically to, to kind of translate it into, their, into how they understood it, it, was, it would be this. In the beginning period of time, God created by assigning functions to the heavens and the earth, and this is how he did it. And then we come to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay, there's a couple terms that I wanted to find. This, this idea of being without form or void, other translations call it different things. It's these two, two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. It's kind of easy to remember. Tohu and bohu. Uh, without for, form and void. But... Again, from a 21st century mind, we think materially, and they're thinking functionally. So what this means is, the cosmos were empty of purpose, meaning, and function. The, the cosmos were per, the empty of purpose, meaning, and function. Darkness, this word darkness, um, is not the kind of darkness that you and I think of. Um, it's not a negative term, as much as a more of an ambiguous term. Um, it is not darkness as, as we think of darkness, like evil. In fact, there is no evil or demonic state of things that are happening in this, in this verse. That's not what it's describing. Darkness as an evil that's lurking. No, it just means it's functionless. There's no purpose. But God brings order, and, and, and so that's what's going to happen. And then the Spirit of God, man, we could, again, we could spend, there's so much to this one. Um, the, the word literally is wind, wind of Elohim, wind of God. Um, but, again, if, if, if I'm an Israelite 3,500 years ago-ish, I'm not, I, don't have a, I don't have a good grasp of what we think of when we read this verse. We think of Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is. He's hovering there. That's not what they're thinking. 
They don't have a developed view of that. They don't have an understanding of the Spirit of God. And so, so here's how one commentator said it. To translate Holy Spirit here runs the risk of superimposing Trinitarian concepts onto Genesis 1 that are not present to the original audience. So, that's that. We could go on, but we can't. I wish we could. Um, so from here on out, I need somebody to read chunks of scripture. Who would like to read? No. Uh, yes. Can you read? You always read. I need somebody up here. So, so yeah, so read um, uh, 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God, God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there is evening, and there is morning, the first day. Okay, so several things that you're going to hear that are going to be repeated throughout each of these days and throughout this chapter. The first one is this idea of God said. Okay, it appears 11 times, and here is what this is describing. This, this is what starts to make sense. This isn't just like um, a, some cool trick that God has. Hey, He can speak and things come. It's the, what, what is being pointed out here is that God's creative power comes from His command. That the God of Israel is powerful and has authority. And what He says comes true. What He says comes into exist. Comes, in, comes to be. Comes, be. Has function. Serves a purpose. When He speaks, it, it happens. Okay. Then He says the word good. He says it seven times in, in this section. In this, in this chapter. And the idea is that whatever God does is good and is right and has purpose that is good and is right. That's what he's saying. And he says evening and morning, and then he'll say first day and second day and third day. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because now we need to talk about the word day briefly. Um, the, the, this idea of the evening and morning, the, the first day, is, is again a literary, a literary device. A lit- when I say device, I mean a... Uh, a key, literary key, that indicates like the end of a section. So, right? You see it happening. The word day. There is at least, as I was reading, reading research, and there's at least six different explanations for what day is referring to. And if we had, if, again, if we're thinking material, if we're thinking how and, you know, how did God form the earth and how fast did that happen and is it seven days, is it seven periods of time, is it all this stuff? When, when you start asking the question of functional, that God isn't necessarily interested in answering our science questions, but He's, he's interested in showing that his, his people that He has power to create and to bring order and purpose to this world. And so, with that in mind, um, I, I think this is less and less about how old and how young the earth is. That, that question, I don't believe, is answered in, in this chapter. Um, but, in my limited opinion, okay, and I'm going to say this, but I think that because of Genesis, what, what it's highlighting, highlighting the power and the purpose of God, bringing order and function to the, to the cosmos, I believe he's doing it during the daytime. I believe, he's, I believe God, the, the, the author is pointing out that God is doing all this in the daytime. And I think that's why it makes sense that what happens next is the evening, and then the morning, and then the next day he... He speaks. So, we can, you can talk more about that with me if you want later. 
day two, six verses six through eight. Okay, so couple. there's a word here that's been used several times. It's actually used nine times in this chapter. It's kind of a nebulous term for us, but for most of them, most likely it meant some kind of, some kind of dome, some kind of thing that existed. Now, remember the very first key that I said, that when God's, God writes to, through these ancient authors, He's using terms that they understood. And for centuries, they believed that there was some sort of dome that existed above the sky. And, and, that, and that because water comes from above, there must be water up there. And, you know, phrases like the, the floodgates of heaven open up, right? And so these, these terms and these phrases and these ideas were kind of used to help explain. See, when they, when they saw, they observed, and, and that's how they came up with their ideas. They just, okay, water falls, there must be water up there. So, my God, right? So, so I'll, talk about, I'll talk more about this later, this idea, but it's a fascinating understanding that God speaks through their understanding, not through ours. Um, but for them, again, the expanse played a very important function and functional role. Not only did it create the sky and the sea, that's what we see happening here, the sky and the sea, but it is the basis for weather. And I'll talk, I'll talk more about it. The other word is heaven that's used here, and it's not the heaven we think of. It's, it's the sky. That's most likely the best translation of that word. Okay, verses 9 through 13, day 3. God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruits in which there is in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Okay. So this idea of separating things is actually a, a common idea amongst ancient Near Eastern creation narratives. Like this idea that God's separated things and and brought order to things. So, um, it's, it's, a, it's a functional act in creation. And if you're like me, you immediately start picturing the water receding and ground appearing and then, you know, seedlings popping up and trees forming and fruit happening. And, and that's not necessarily what they're thinking. Um, that it, I mean, that's essentially kind of what it's describing. But again, if we, when we start looking at this from, with a material mindset, this, this section kind of presents some problems, like to try to explain how this works. But when we think of it in terms of functional orientation, functional process that's happening, then we see that God is, what He's highlighting here is basically He's establishing soil, water, seeds, and fruit, which is the essential 
essential to the production of food. Okay, so day one, God creates the basis for time, right? The, the day, the night, the basis for time. Day two, God creates the basis for weather. Day three, God creates the basis for food. And then the next one comes with creating the basis for, for rhythm. So read day four, 14 through 19. And God said, let there, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. And let them be for the signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater lights to rule the day and the lesser lights to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Okay. Now remember, like I said, the first key that God, cre- God communicates through ancient authors in terms they understood, because he's creating the sun, the moon, and the stars, um, and he's bringing order and, 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 and purpose to them. But notice how he describes them as the greater light and the lesser light. And again, when we, when we, it's, when we read this, we, we think, okay, greater light, lesser light? Why, why would he call it that? And it's kind of like when we say the sun rises and the sun sets. Because we know the sun actually doesn't move. But we still use those terms to describe what's happening. And I, and I wonder if that's what's happening here. That they understood this great light and they understood this lesser light. And so this is another example of when we try to read Genesis um, with, with our mindset going, why didn't he call it the sun? Why didn't he call it the moon? Um, then it, when we read it like that, we, we kind of, it kind of sounds like God is just ignorant of the facts of, that are very obvious to us. And that's not what he's doing. That's not ha- what's happening. Again, when we consider an or, the order and function of everything, he is establishing the, base, the basis for Rhythms of seasons and days and years. So you have time, weather, food, and rhythms that are really the foundation for life to exist, which happens in day five. So read 20 through 23. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day okay so day five and six seem to be we'll see in a second a little different than the others the others are laying a foundation for life to exist and flourish, and now we see life introduced in these living creatures, um, in, in birds and fish, and he's giving, um, giving them function. He, he's, he says, you have a function, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill. Fill the space, fill the realm in which you exist. And so he created them with this ability um, to do that, and he tells them to do it in, in the specific spaces that he's given them. All of this, again, all of this points to, this is, what's, this is what we don't see when we read this kind of stuff. We start asking questions that aren't here. But all of this points to how God is in control, and they are not out of His control. He is creating and calling the shots here. Okay? So day 6, and just read 24 and 25. Okay. 
God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Okay. Like day five, day six has its creatures carrying out their functions in those spaces. And um, so Darwin need not look to these verses to find descriptions of what's happening. Okay? When he's writing to these ancient Israelite people, he wants them to know who's in charge. He wants them to know who's creating order and bringing function and who's calling the shots. And so he says, let, let the earth bring forth. He's not saying that life comes from the ground. He's saying, because that would be thinking from a material orientation. He's, again, he's calling the shots. He's ordering animals to come forth. That's, that's what is happening. God is in charge here. And he saw that it was good. And this is a summary. This summary comes after the birds and the fish and after the, the animals here. Um, and again, he is saying, and it's good. It's right. It has purpose. And now to the humans. Read 26 through 31. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created, created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, so think about this from their perspective. Um, everything up until now has been establishing order in order to introduce humanity into the picture. And like every other living creature, he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill. But then he adds this line, um, subdue it have dominion over, and he names all the other living creatures, fish and birds and animals, and he gives them every seed and every tree and every fruit for food. And so next week we're going to spend our whole time talking about this, like the image of God and, and what this is describing, because it's huge. Um, but here you just need to see that, that, that God creates humans with this divine, as divine representatives to carry out His authority, to rule in, in a way that brings glory to Him, and to carry out the things that He's called them to. And there's such dignity in what He's describing, and we don't have time to get into it. But notice at the very end it says, it was very good. This is, a, again, a literary key. So he's, He said it was good, 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 it was good six times, I don't know. And then this time He says it was very good. So that should it's supposed to key that something's different here. What... What is he describing in its humanity? It's, it's God is highlighting and emphasizing the pinnacle of, of His creation. And then chapter 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. This, again, is a literary conclusion 
to what has just taken place. And it transitioned to the next line. And I'm going to read it. Um, chapter 2, 2 and 3, it says, And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done. And He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. See, rest in the ancient time is closely tied to and closely related to the end of conflict and the end of war. So it's when crisis is brought to peace. It's when stability is brought to chaos. Um, that's the idea that's happening here. So he's, it's, he's not tired. He's not checking out. He's not ret- returning to his, his home while he lets the earth do his thing. In fact, if anything, there's a lot of talk about the cosmos being the Lord's temple that he dwells in, that he lives in, that he reigns and rules in. And so in some ways he is sitting on his throne, he's ruling with authority, and everything is good and right. There is order to the chaos, there is fullness to the empty, there is light and life to the darkness. So, let me summarize this. Actually on the screen here you'll see not only is, is does God kind of walk through these things, but, but, but day one and day three have some literary keys that tie them together. And day two and day five have keys that tie them together. Day three and day six tie them together. And so you kind of see how this happens from a literary standpoint. You have this introduction, you have these days that line up, this literary devices that kind of line up together, and you have this conclusion, and then God rests. So let me summarize it in eight lines. In the beginning... God brings order to the cosmos. And this God is in control and masterfully guiding its course. He establishes functional existence to the foundation of time, weather, food, and rhythms for life. He introduces creatures to these environments and tells them to fill it. And all that He does is good and right and has purpose. And people are are the pinnacle of His creation given the divine sorry, the dignity to represent Him and His authority. And God assigns these image bearers the task of ruling on His behalf for His glory and enjoying His favor as He provides for their needs. Then, God sits on His throne in command of and sustaining the good world He just created in His rightful place and proper role. So, the question is, as we kind of take this break, what is God up to here? And where is this story going? And that's hopefully what we're going to talk about next. Why don't you go ahead and take a break, and uh, we'll come back. So Scott kind of opened up the door to the question about Genesis 1, and it's... It's questions about the creation that we find to be interesting or fascinating. And I I still remember the first time one of my graduate professors said, uh, I want you to take a look at and read a number of different creation narratives. So don't just read the ones from Genesis, but take a look at some other ones. And uh, when I started reading them at first, it it did unsettle me a little bit. I was like, wow, so the Bible isn't the only book that describes how the world was made. 
And uh, my professor would just kind of challenge me, like, keep reading them. Like, think about, like, in the same way that I think it's even appropriate for us to think through and to ask some questions of the Genesis story, um, I think it's good to kind of compare things with things, right? Of like, uh, of, of like origin. So I want to read to you a creation story that um, existed with a group of people that exists somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, okay? I'm not, and I'm, so you know, okay, so the Portland area, okay? <laughs> I, 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 I try not to laugh about that, but truly it's in that area. And it's a story of, of a raven that created the world. Story of a raven um, that was in Northern California. And so this would be much older, by the way. So it's adding kind of where it would actually be. And it goes on like this. One variant, the raven is taught by his father to be a creator. But the raven is unsatisfied with the result. So it creates a world, but then is unable to give it light or water, which is kind of fascinating in light of the Genesis story. On hearing that light could be found on a far-off land, the raven decided to travel there and steal the light. In that house of light, he finds a young woman living with her father and plays the first of many tricks, as you know ravens can be that way. And He turns himself, this raven, into a small speck of dirt, then slips, it in, slips into a, some drinking water, which is then swallowed by the daughter. The daughter then gets pregnant and gives birth to an unusually uh, weird and fussy child who cries constantly and demands to touch one of the bundles that had been stored, bundles of food, that was hanging on the wall. The child is given one of the bags to quiet it, but when he tries, uh, when he tires of playing with it, he lets it go and it floats away through this smoke hole that existed in their tent. And then once it reached the sky, the bundle became undone and it scattered and became the stars. Isn't that cool? And then when the child cried again, because he wanted it back, because he was mad that it left, it was given a second bundle to play with, and it flowed away, same through the same hole in the ceiling, and then it became the moon. And this happened with the third and the last bundle, which when it flew away, became sunlight. So that's the story of the raven. Which is, I, I, I find it fascinating that there's an interest of light, and there's an interest of water, and so, I mean, if you don't like the biblical narrative, you could, you could decide to do the raven, would be an option. Here's another one. Um, this one, they, you can find it, you can find it literally dating as back as 194 AD. Um, it's in parts of China. Um, I, I think it is actually pronounced uh, Pangu, is how you pronounce it, I believe. Pangu. Um, in the beginning, there was nothing in the universe except formless chaos. Isn't that interesting? This chaos was coalesced into a cosmic egg for 18,000 years. And then within it, there was a perfectly opposed principle of both yin and what? Yang. And they became perfectly balanced, and that's when Pangu emerged, or maybe woke up. From within this egg, Pangu is described as a primitive hairy giant who has horns on his head and wears fur. Pangu began creating the world. He separated yin from yang, 
with a swing of his giant axe in which he created the earth and the sky. To keep them separated, Pangu stood between them, and he pushed up on the sky. With each day, the sky grew three meters high. The earth, took ten, the earth would, would grow ten feet thicker, and Pangu would grow ten feet taller. His task took another 18,000 years. In some versions of this story, Pangu um, is actually aided in this task by four very prominent beasts. One, beasts, one was a turtle, one was a quillin, one was a phoenix, and the other one was a dragon. After 18,000 years elapsed, Pangu then died. His breath became the wind, um, the mist, and the clouds. His voice became the thunder. His left eye became the sun, and his right eye became the moon, and his head became the mountains. So that's, that's how they're, and honestly, the one thing I really appreciate is like they're trying to figure out like how all of this came to be. His blood became the rivers, his muscles became the fertile land, his facial hair became the stars and the Milky Way, his fur, um, bushes and forests, his bones became the valuable minerals, um, his bone marrow became diamonds, and his sweat became rain. And the fleas that were on his fur became the animals. <laughs> so that's the story of Pangu. Um, in Mali, which would be in Western Africa, right? So there's a lot of ideas about how civilization began somewhere in the, some say in the Euphrates Valley where we would th see modern day Iraq or maybe somewhere in, on, the, on the continent of Africa. Um, the story of the Mendi peoples begins with the god Mangala, the creator god tries making a balaza seed, but it failed. So then he made two eleusine seeds. Do you even know what these seeds are, Jake? Two other kinds of seeds from different kinds. And then there became an egg of the world with two twin parts that were needed to procreate. So then Mangala made three more pairs of seeds, and each pair became the four elements, the four directions, as the four corners of the framework of the world's creation. And then he folded this all into a hibiscus seed. And then there were twin pairs of seeds, which were a seed having opposite sex. And they become referred to as the egg or the placenta, which is the world. The egg held an additional two pair of twins, one male and one female, who were the archetype for all peoples. Among them was Pemba, who wished to dominate, and so he left the egg, ripping a piece of the placenta. Pemba fell through space, and this torn placenta then became the earth. Because he left the egg prematurely, the earth formed from this piece and was arid and barren and of no use to Pemba. So Pemba tried to return to the egg to rejoin his twin and the place, uh, and, the place and rest within the placenta, but it was not to be found again. And everything had changed into the sun. So Pemba stole male seeds from Mangala's uh, clavicle, <laughs> And took them to the barren earth and planted them there so that the world could begin to grow. Anybody glad for Genesis? <laughs> and honestly, I mean, I, I find it to be very interesting in terms of like what these stories do. I, I read one years ago when I was teaching through the book of Genesis and it described this giant cosmic beaver that made, it was, I must be Canadian, and, and then because... Uh, you know, you guys have the eagle, 
but whoa, Canada, the mighty beaver. <laughs> and uh, in, in, the, in one of these myths, there was this giant beaver, and he made this giant dam, and then the dam broke, and then that kind of created the universe and the world. I mean, they're trying to explain, like what science does, right? Trying to explain the world. Trying to explain where we have come from. And it, Scott did a great job saying, listen, so here's, here's one of the issues. You walk into a science class, and they say, wow, like, are you going to read the Bible like a science book? To which I, I say, well, no, I'm going to actually read it like the Bible wants to be read, which is um, an explanation, a revelation from God in terms of who he is and who we are. Like it actually does a whole lot more than science. Because science can't answer that question. Where did we come from? What kind of experiment are you going to do to come up with that one? Where did we come from? Like what made us? I mean, what I find fascinating about any one of these stories, right? Anybody else asking this question? So the raven goes and talks to its dad. So is the dad the god? Well, no. The dad actually had parents. Okay, so... Our, so where, where did all these things come from? Never, never really dealt with. Never really dealt with. And so I find it interesting that there are these common themes about light and about the four corners and about the winds and about the chaos that exists. And it is in kind of this context. I, I didn't get into reading it, but one of the most famous ones is known as Enu Emish, which is the Babylonian myth. And there's these different gods, and one falls asleep. And Timot is this woman-type god, this, this goddess. And they're trying to deal with her, and then there's this great god, um, kind of a lesser god, uh, but becomes a greater god named Marduk. And Marduk fights Timot, and Marduk slays Timot and slits her open. And as he slits open Timot and takes her carcass and spreads it throughout the universe, that is what all the physical world that we actually see is, is Marduk's creation. And that's the Babylonian myth. And so I guess you could, if you wanted to, believe that everything that we see that exists in the universe is as described by some of these creation myths. Or you could say maybe the Bible is offering an answer. But what the Bible is, is trying to do, alongside some of these, I, I think particularly... Um, the myth that would come out of, of, of Babylon, although, you know, in terms of dating, it gets kind of interesting. But what, what, the, what the Bible really wants us to get a hold of in Genesis 1 and 2, particularly Genesis 1, in Genesis 1 and 2, is it's trying to create um, for the people of Israel and for us, this, this ultimate paradigm is that there is a creator and then there is that which is created. And there is a great distinction between the two. Like one of the, one of the, one of the major differences that actually exists within Christianity, um, it's, although we're not the only religion, I would say uh, Israel, uh, so the, the Jewish people would share this, and even within Islam, they share this. Okay, So we're not the only ones, Christians aren't the only ones that actually see this distinction. Although within Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam, there's a common denominator, right? which is the creation narrative, by the way. <laughs> but this is one of the big things that Genesis wants you to see. And I really think it speaks to us today pretty profoundly. Genesis isn't trying to answer how old the earth is or how long it took God to do it, although there are some dates in there. But what the Genesis narrative is trying to get you to understand is that there was nothing but God 
and then God out of His sovereign power and will and purpose decided to make everything else. And it's known as the great creator-created distinction. And one of the things that this actually then does and kind of plays out in the rest of the Bible is that be very, very careful, the Bible says this, be very, very careful like worshiping anything that is down here. Be very, very careful doing that. Because there are only certain things that are actually worthy of our worship, actually only one thing that is worthy of our worship, and, and, and that is God himself. So worship belongs up here and not down here. And why do we not worship down here? Is because truly, like it was created, it's temporary. Why would you worship something that's temporary? Why would you worship something that in the end really has no like substance or any power of itself or of its own uh, volition or, or ability? And so this steps into kind of a, a world that has all these competing ideas and all of a sudden what you actually see is within the biblical story of the book of Genesis that God, Yahweh God, decided out of his, out of his power but out of his love and out of just kind of the overflow of his goodness, decides to create. I'm going I'm to kind of end my time in the book of Revelation, but I just want to kind of write that down because it's interesting that you're in Genesis 1 today, but we're kind of on a trajectory, as Scott described, in terms of from creation to fall to redemption and restoration. And you'll actually be able to see some of the very important themes that are developed in Genesis chapter 1 that are really important for Christian people to realize. So, for example, created things um, in, in different cultures, um, created things can actually be considered to be like physical and therefore inherently evil or bad, but that's not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview, as Scott pointed out, is what? Everything that God made was created what? Good. So the Bible actually says that we, like, we receive everything that God has made because it is good and we receive it with thanksgiving and joy, don't we? So do you see the difference? Like the, the created world isn't bad, it's not terrible, it's actually good and God made it and God made it what? For our enjoyment, so we should enjoy it. Um, Romans 1 though gives us a very kind of interesting picture that I, I think is really very true for today, which is this. Romans 1 says, be very careful worshiping created things instead of their creator. Do you guys see that today? Kind of this love and this fascination with created things over and above creator. This love with the earth. This love even with humanity. The love with our environment. And so there could be a couple of, of, uh, of ways of looking at it. One is, is that the environment, we can do whatever we want to it. Well, I mean, not if it's not ours. Like, the environment belongs to who? Like, who does the universe belong to? It's easy. God. So it's not yours to wreck. It's not yours to treat like a play playground. It's yours to enjoy, but it's, it's yours to, 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 to use and to, to cultivate, to turn in something that is even more beautiful in the same way that God made, and then he gives this mandate for us to care for the land and to use it well. To use it wisely? So we don't, we don't exploit? Why would we exploit this? It's not even ours. It was given to us as a gift. 
And so the Christian mindset that's developed from a good understanding of Genesis 1 actually gives us the appropriate response to the creation that we've been given. So we appreciate it. We give thanks to God, the Creator, for it. We don't manipulate it or exploit it. We enjoy it and we care for it. That's a fundamental difference. And then we got to be really, really careful that we don't slip into a worship of it. Because as the Bible is going to teach, there is something that is wrong with the, with the created order. And I know that uh, you guys are going to get to that when you hit Genesis chapter 3. But created things, as, as, you, as you already know this, there's going to be a brokenness that exists. But one of the most important chapters of the Bible is, in fact, Genesis 1. Because what we're going to see is that when God decides at the end of time um, that he wants to, to celebrate and he wants, to, um, um, he wants his people that he has created in his own image and he wants to spend eternity with them, do you know what he does? He gives them a place. And guess what he calls it? This is kind of an interesting word. Guess what he calls it? Say it. Do you know what he calls it? This new place that we're all going to go to? You know. What's it called? Yes. Who said it? What did you say? Earth. How many, people, when, how many people were thinking heaven? Raise your hand. Yeah, thank you for telling the truth. Most people were, okay? No, but we all do. We all think of heaven. We all think of heaven. But actually, the way it's described, and, it, and actually that's not totally wrong either, is that what we see in Revelation is that what God gives to us to enjoy is a new earth and a new heaven. In many ways, helping us understand and appreciate like what I've always done had a plan and a purpose. I've always been in charge of these things. Like none of this, uh, one of the most... One of the best gifts that I have been given is a better understanding of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, showing God's sovereign control and plan and power and purpose, where in the end he doesn't just go, yeah, I made it, and Adam and Eve screwed it up, and you know what, to hell with all of them. And um, I got this guy, Jesus, who's going to come back, he's really my son, and then he's going to fix it, and then we're all going to float around like angels. Like, that's kind of what a lot of Christian people believe, right? Like, somehow, that all of what we read in Genesis 1 gets kind of, like, just wiped off the table. Just throw it all off. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to... Actually, that's not what it describes in the Bible. It actually talks more like what God is doing is He is redeeming and restoring His creation. Like, all of His creation. Like, when God made it and it was good and it rebelled against Him... He didn't actually just go, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to destroy it all and I'm going to start over again. I, I want you to, as we kind of wrap this up, I want you to turn to, Genesis, or to, to Revelation chapter 21. And I just want to read you um, a, a, a couple of verses. I'm really not cherry picking these verses. Um, there's just a whole lot more going on. In Revelation 21 and 22, it's kind of the, the vision of the new heaven and the new earth. And beginning in verse 1, though, I just I want to kind of read how these two chapters are kind of set up because they really show us like how all of this is going to end. And I love the picture 
about how all of this is going to end because it helps me have a good understanding of, uh, of kind of like, I think, where we are today in terms of what the Bible is really addressing. Um, so verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I don't know if you ever like looked at that. Why is that strange? What do you mean there's no longer any sea? You mean there's no water? Well, if, what, what God was doing in Genesis 1 was what? Was taming the chaos. Like the sea has always been that place that is untamable. Sea is actually in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 1, and the dragon, which is evil, the devil, stood on the shore of the sea. And in Revelation chapter 21, I, I see this beautiful heaven and this new earth. There's no longer any sea. There's no longer any chaos. We actually see in Revelation 4, there is this wonderful, beautiful, like a sea, which is clear as glass, like smooth. Like it's completely, it's in the, it's in the presence of God and it's, it's completely under control. This is the picture that we see developing in Genesis and now ultimately brought into, into complete alignment under God. I don't think that what this is saying is there's no water in heaven. No, that doesn't seem to make any sense because there's about to be a river. Okay? So when you hear this, there's no longer any sea. It's, it's, it's the beauty of this story that's doing a whole lot more than just battling evolution. What it's really battling, actually, is our deep questions about who is in control of all of this. I mean, that one's a bigger question to me than where the dinosaurs came from. Right? Who owns all this? Who owns me? Where am I going to go? What is eternity going to be like? And so, here we have God bringing this all together. There's no longer any sea. And I see a holy city, this new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from a throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, like, an, like, a, like a garden, like Eden. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. It's no longer just Adam and Eve. It's the people. And God himself will be with them, and he will be their God, like walking in the garden. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things... What does it say? New. It's really interesting because the concept that is actually used here about him making all things new and creating them, when, he, when God first makes things in Genesis, he makes them out of nothing. He doesn't need a seed. He doesn't, he doesn't need, God doesn't stumble across an egg, right? There's nothing but him and he speaks and things come into existence. The creator created distinction, okay? But when God does it down here, it's very interesting the Greek word that is used does not mean like out of nothing. You know what it actually means? Out of that which is broken. It's like, it's like the major fixer-upper. You think Chip and Joanna are good? <laughs> you should see what God's going to do to this place. I'm serious. Like even Magnolia Farms is going to get better. You know what I'm saying? So this is the... No, but think about this. Think about how important this is theologically. Is that God doesn't go, you know what, to hell with it. I'm going to just start again. No. He says, to heaven with it. <laughs> right? <laughs> to, the, to the new earth with it. Like he sees this new heaven and this, he, doesn't, he doesn't dispose of this. What does he do? He recreates this. And we know how he actually does this, amazingly enough, through the power of the cross. Where there is this ultimate restoration of things. 
And behold, he makes all things new again out of that which was broken, and God makes those things new. And then lastly, turn to Revelation 22. Just kind of read some, some few verses from the beginning there. Notice the, notice the Genesis imagery, the Genesis 1 imagery. And the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree, which were used to hide nakedness in the garden, right? And the tree, by the way, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat. This is one that you just eat. And, and it's so interesting because they, the leaves there are for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and of the land will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and that night will be no more. Let there be light and now there is no night. And they will need no light or of lamp or of sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And this is God's plan and God's purpose. Why? Because Genesis 1 tells us it's His. That's what Genesis 1 wants us to know. You have some questions about Genesis? Here's the big question. Who made all this? God did. Why did He do it? For His glory. Make sure you enjoy it. Be sure to, be sure to enjoy it. And, 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 and take care of it and cultivate it. And... Um, and, and treat it like God treated it, which is, uh, my dad used to always say, make sure you leave it better than when you found it, right? Do you have the same parents, right? Leave it better than you found it? Yeah, God kind of had that same, similar mindset. I gave this to you, and then he gave it these things to cultivate. Now, he messed it up. But by the grace of God, he said, listen, I knew, I knew, I know. I got it all figured out. But in the end, I'm going to give you what I meant to give you, and I fixed it up for you again. And this one can't get messed up. It really can't. Now, there's a whole bunch of other theological things that I promise you're kind of running through your head. But that's the story of Genesis 1 and how it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Pray. God, thank you for your creation and for the joy that we have to be a part of it. Thank you for opportunities that we have to, uh, to study it. Um, so God, thank you for questions that we ask that maybe the text is not designed um, to answer directly, uh, but I'm grateful that there um, are really smart people like Jake and Drew and Scott and Rachel to help us with those questions, um, because although your word may not speak directly to every question that we might have, you do, and, and, and in a very real way, your scriptures still speak. Help us to ask better questions. Um, to pursue you, and uh, Father, to allow you to speak. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said. All right. So there are, there are like four or five places that you can go right now. All right? Uh, for some of you, you may have questions spinning in your head about some of the stuff you heard talking.